Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. On today's show, the brilliant Australian actor Rob Carlton joins me to discuss his new live show, Willing Participant. My name is Justin Hamilton, and I wish someone would cast me as a thug here on Big Squid. Welcome to today's episode of Big Squid. Uh, this is a scorcher of an interview with Rob Carlton, uh, one of Australia's great actors. You may know him for playing Kerry Packer in the Paper Giants miniseries. He's currently starring in the TV miniseries Boy Swallows Universe, which is appearing on Netflix. And at the moment, he is about to bring his new show, or I should say take his new show, Willing Participant, to the Adelaide Fringe before going to Canberra and then travelling, hopefully, all around Australia. Uh, Rob is an amazing raconteur. Uh, He's a very gentle man uh, and he thinks deeply about everything in his life but he's also extremely funny and this uh, interview slash chat with him is full of the joy it just makes you really happy and anyone who will be uh, heading down uh, to the Adelaide Fringe or who already lives in Adelaide and is thinking that they might like to check it out uh, this will give you just a little a little nudge in the right direction. So I can't wait for you to hear this. Uh, before we get into it, I uh, just wanted to say to everyone, thank you so much for the fantastic um, response to The Ultimate, which has been playing on this feed. It's uh, under the Beautiful Tales for the Disenchanted uh, banner, and it's 
being an ongoing story that will probably end up around 33 chapters, I think, off the top of my head. We're getting to the business end of the story, and I have loved the feedback, and I have thoroughly loved the people who are trying to work out where it may land. So just wanted to take this opportunity to say thank you so much for listening and also all your thoughts and ideas. It uh, really uh, has brought a lot of joy to me for you to uh, be uh, participating and engaging with it in this regard. Uh, Coming up over the next few weeks, we'll be doing some best ofs. I will be going through my best ofs with TV and uh, movies, etc. I never really understand why the best ofs always come out at the end of the year when shit's not finished. It drives me nuts. Like you'll see a best of at the beginning of December when there's still stuff to experience. So I would rather do my best ofs a little bit later and be able to give you a full response. And there's also things like uh, the latest season of Fargo. I'm, I'm classing that as a 2023 series. It's going to finish, you know, it's going to finish in uh, this week, actually. It finishes tonight. So I want to get to the end of that and then see if it makes my top 10. Spoiler alert, I have a feeling it 100% will. But anyway, that will be coming up over the next uh, few weeks as well. So we'll have some best ofs, uh, we'll have some more guests, and we will finish off the ultimate and where that may land. So looking forward to that. And then also, uh, just a little reminder, if you are looking for some uh, uh, small blogs, uh, I've I've set myself the goal of writing uh, nice, concise blogs once a week this year, and uh, you can find them at bigsquidpod.com. They're under the uh, heading of uh, Dispatches from the Fury Road. That's the name of the blog. Kind of sums up how I feel about the world in the title. And uh, yeah, if you'd like to check that out, if you feel like, you know, you have a spare four or five minutes on public transport or waiting for someone, uh, maybe that will appeal to you. All right, enough out of me. Let's get to the uh, interview. I'll pop back to say goodbye. But in the meantime, sit back and thoroughly enjoy the wonderful Rob Carlton. So we've been friends for a long time now. And one of the things that is funny about being friends with you is that you've actually been in my life a lot longer than we've been friends. Do you know, do you know what I mean? Like not I've been watching a, you. Not in a stalky way. Like <laughs> I'd be wrapped. If I found out that you were stalking me, I'd be like, I'm doing something right. But uh, it's, uh, I've been watching you on, on TV and in movies uh, for, for such a long time. And I was like, well, where was the first time that I'd uh, seen you perform. And then I had this vague memory and I actually spoke to my mum because I was an avid uh, watcher of a certain TV show when I was young. Do you want to take a guess where mum and I think we first saw you? I'm going to guess a country practice. Oh, no, no, not a country practice. No, the reason I mentioned that, I got a message yesterday with the photo of me as yeah. a fourteen-year-old, I was fourteen on a country practice. Right, and the girl who was in the scene with me was thirteen. 
she's now like a music star and lives just over there. It's oh, like, that is hilarious. Anyway, so I've got these uh, weird. What? What? Okay, so not that. So it wasn't, no. Was it a Shelley's ad? I, I, one of the first ever ad I did when I was like 13, I was drinking Shelley's. It oh. was the first lesson I got, Justin. Yeah. To not go hard on eating or drinking the product <laughs> in the first scene of a, an ad. Because really? While, yeah, while orange fizzy drink for a 14 year old was an attractive proposition at uh, 9am <laughs> on the first morning of shooting, uh, by 12.30, let me assure you, I never wanted to see another orange bubbly fucker in my life. <laughs> oh, great. Good for the potential diabetes in the future to have that lesson early. You know what? I actually saw an interview with Gary Oldman recently mm -hmm. uh, talking about uh, his performance as Jackson Lamb in Slow Horses on Apple oh, yeah. TV. And one of his pet peeves is people not eating and drinking. And he had a scene where he's eating ramen noodles. And he said that he ate like 13 or 14 bowls of it in this one scene. And I guess lucky for him. It, for people who haven't seen Slow Horses, Jackson Lamb is disgusting. So yeah, it kind of yeah. worked. Oh, mate. But there is, yeah, people do that and they, they avoid the food because of that repetition. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I love it when good actors hoe into a big steak and you sit there going, oh, they're chewing, man, their jaws would be stuffed after hours yeah. of filming that. Well, that's a Brad Pitt move, isn't it? Like there's so mm. many movies mm. where he's mm. eating all the time. Mm. I guess he can get away with it because he's Brad Pitt. I tell you what, yeah, we can get away with pretty much anything. There is something funny about I really like eating in scenes. I find it heaps easier to act natural when you've got, um, you know, a, a stack of food in your gob. Yeah. I don't know what it is. It's some sort of reptilian, everything's going to be fine. And it kind of relaxes your reactions for some reason. Well, I guess because when someone says something, like, isn't one of the skills of acting which people don't really talk about is the ability to listen. So you react correctly to what's being said because it could come with a different intonation etc but if you're chewing you're listening but you also have to take into account you might gag on the food or you have to swallow or do you know what i mean is that just does it kind of remove you from the acting yeah no i don't know it's one of those things i mean often when you say remove you those little blocks can sometimes help you yeah uh, little li limitations inside a scene so if you're kind of eating and then you suddenly have to respond to a slightly different thing and you've got a a, a hurdle to overcome yeah. The human being under pressure is an extraordinary organism. It can navigate its way through so many different things. And so if you've got a couple of limitations, a couple of hurdles, that trying to speak while you've got a peanut butter sandwich <laughs> in your mouth can, can, can something like the, the meaning can come through your eyes and your forehead. Oh, obviously my forehead. Um, <laughs> it, it can come through a different way. I mean, I've often, I mean, this is an oft trod truth. Some people's best stage performances come when they're horribly hungover or unwell, feeling right. under the weather, because you arrive and you think, I can never get through this performance. But there's something about the stress of a human being getting through a story while under pressure that's utterly compelling. And every other element of your mindscape kind of goes away and focuses on the one thing that you've got to try and do. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a strange thing. Not it's, Our limitations don't always hinder us. Yeah, interesting. You know, before before I get to this, um, oh, I've just realised, before we get to this uh, original TV mm -hmm. series that Mum and I think we first saw you in, I also have to, uh, my friend the playwright, Melanie Tate, would be aghast mm -hmm. if I didn't ask you what your a country practice experience was like. Oh, my Lord. 
Well, I started, so Country Practice was my very first drama. Um, yep. And it started auspiciously, I think you'll agree, Justin, uh, where I was only 14, but I was still rather a malevolent threat. Um, and while I wasn't a nasty guy, the suggestion was that I might be able to, about to, uh, you know, sort of perform some nastiness on this young girl that's just run away from home. Oh. And that was, of course, the harbinger for most of my roles growing up where I'm the nasty bastard on right. every single TV show. On a country practice, I just did that first bit. I think I played four different characters in a country practice over the years. Um, I was a friend of um, of uh, Joe, she played by Joe Mitchell. I think it was Joe Loveday in the show. Yeah. Uh, I broke my arm, and through the breaking of my arm, we discovered a murder. Right. Extra extraordinary stuff. I played a mad fellow called Budgie Markham, where a lot of my scenes were with es Esme Watson. Um, and oh, could, that's great. Oh, that was outstanding stuff. And who could ever forget my turn as the young Olympic hopeful cyclist that was struck down in the prime of his life with testicular cancer? And oh, of course, God. They performed an orchidectomy. I don't need to tell you what that. Uh, <laughs> I don't need to tell you what, what that was, and I will. Of course, they removed one of the testicles. And my favourite line ever, I think, from a country practice was after the procedure. He came up to my bed. He looked at me and he said, "Well, we have uh, done that, um, and the testicle was sent to Burrigan for testing." Um, and then the doctor assured me that while one was gone, I did have one left oh. and it would produce enough of the necessaries to compensate, I believe, oh, was the line from the learned doctor. Was that from um, the actor Shane Porteous? No, 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 it wasn't from was Shane. I believe it was from the handsome younger doctor, Andrew Blackwell, that oh, came right. in uh, yes. shortly after Shane Porteous. But Shane Porteous, of course, one of the great Australian actors. Oh, mate, that show was – that was appointment viewing for me. I was a Grant oh. Dodwell fan. He was mm. adorable and uh, mm. Shane Withington as well. And, oh, uh, mate, Shane's you know. a beauty. I'm still good friends with Shane. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's, he's one of those fellows. But, yeah, that uh, country practice was such great fun. So four or five different roles over the years turning up. It was just great practice, great legwork. Well, according to your IMDb, you appeared in 11 episodes from 1985 to 1993. So they obviously spaced you out to make sure that they didn't go, wow, isn't that the same guy who was talking to Esme earlier? Mate, the number of times I thought to myself, surely the Australian uh, viewer is going to catch on to this yeah. little ruse. Uh, and I also did think, surely there's another actor uh, that, can play, <laughs> that can play these roles, but apparently not. Years later, I actually... Um, I played uh, a couple of different characters in Water Rats. Right. Um, and extraordinarily, I'm sure you'll agree, uh, I, I stormed the same police office twice uh, wow. as different characters, except the, the only difference being, I think, the first time I attacked it uh, with a sawn-off shotgun, and yep. the second time I came back, I had a, um, an axe. Wow. Wow. It's like you went, I was too high-tech the first time. I'm going lo-fi this time. Oh, I did. I think the first time was planned and the second time was a um, just an act of passion. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah that yeah. explains an axe. Ill thought out. Yeah, just picking up whatever's around. Oh, this will do. <laughs> well, there's an interesting connection too because the second time I attacked the water rat's office was I was charged with disposing of a body improperly at sea. Right. Which sounds kind of odd. Right, and it sounds yeah. like you'd never do that twice. 
Well, I have. Because yeah. last year in the Channel 10 production of North Shore, while yeah. I didn't murder the young girl in question, I certainly disposed of her body improperly at sea. Wow. But, and in Sydney Harbour. So I don't think there's too many people with that feather in their cap, Justin. Mate. The, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Through all these different characters, you're not learning any lessons. Not a thing. Yeah. Not a thing. Um, but I think that's the beauty of TV, isn't it? We plough on, we have our experience, we learn nothing, and we start again when we started. Right, it's great. Well, you know what? This uh, Mum and I mm -hmm. think the first show that we saw you in, we are pretty certain it was East Street. Oh, of course. Yeah, no, it was. It would have been East Street. And, that, and again, look, I may have bashed up an old man in East Street, right? I may have done it, right? And it may have been in the unholy pursuit of a female that didn't want my uh, attention. I grant you all of that. But let me ask you this, Justin Hamilton. As a Christian, should the Reverend Bob have kicked me out of East Street the way he did? Or should he have shown me a loving heart Mate. and said, look, you've beaten up an old man. You've pestered a woman beyond her means. But, mate, it looks like you are in need a little bit of love and you need a little bit of help. But did the Reverend Bob give me that? He gave me nothing, Justin. He Fuck. kicked me out of East Street like the bum I was. Man, like, you know what it probably was in the Reverend's uh, uh, case is that he was exhausted by the regular uh, characters that he kept forgiving. Mate, that's true. You think He'd run his, out of empathy. His forgiveness well had runneth dry. <laughs> Is it is it strange when you're a young actor and you and you're finding your way through the industry and and you have these ideas of what you want to perform and then it's like oh I'm playing another thug. Well, mate, it would have been hard if I didn't have the mother I had. Who, like, here's an example. My mum loves me to pieces and I love her, but. Um, not that long ago, she was staying up at my house and I'd woken up. Um, I, I, I'm a late sleeper, as you know. And um, I'd come downstairs and my mother looked at me and she said, Oh, good morning, Daddy. Good morning. She said, What are those dogs? What are those dogs that have too much skin for their faces? What are they called? They, I said, Oh, a bloodhound, Mum. She said, Yes, you look like a bloodhound. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very right? much. And so that's my, so I grew up with a reasonably clear idea of the sort of fellow I was. Now, obviously, being called Robert, uh, I always wanted to be a Robert Redford type, right. type actor. But having my mum, knowing my mum, knowing me, um, I was unlikely then to grow up under the illusion that I had Robert Redford's charms. And so when I started to play uh, low-level thugs and criminals as, and I, as I got better at my craft and older and started really graduating into full-on murderers and, and the worse than that, um, it was no surprise that this face is one that the audience don't like. Mate, this is, I reckon <laughs> we're ready for a uh, renaissance. I reckon we need to uh, write a, uh, a romantic comedy. That oh. is for grown-ups. A grown-up, like, you know, like a Neil Simon. Yeah. yeah. Dare, right, dare I... I mention the name Woody Allen, kind of. Oh. Rob <laughs> Too Reiner. Soon. Too yeah. soon. <laughs> but you know the type of movies I'm I thinking do, about. I yeah. do, I do. 
Yeah, look, I'm up for that. Of course I'm up for that. I'd love to play a romantic lead, but I don't hold out too much hopes there, Justin. As you know, I, I was on Underbelly and they didn't ask me to get nude. So if you're not getting asked <laughs> to get nude on the one show that asks everyone to get nude, I think that's sending a pretty clear message. If the Australian you, public isn't ready for too much loving from this character here. Are you, are you turning up on the set totally nude and they're like, no, mate, you're good. Oh, back, mate. Back yeah, to the no, trailer. Yeah, have a three-piece three suit, sir. Have a three-piece suit. <laughs> and you're like, oh, fuck, I've wasted a lot of money on this full body tan. Oh, damn it. If you'd known that, I wouldn't have done the 50 push-ups just out there to try and get buffed on the arrival. <laughs> yeah, I would have had a fucking sandwich three days ago. <laughs> What was um what was your first uh moment of like noticing uh the the uh, an actor and and uh, as a kid because for me like the first movie star I got into which was you know to be honest through mum was Steve McQueen so we always used to watch Steve McQueen movies Great Escape Magnificent Seven Bullet who was the first actor that you saw that you went oh that's what's happening I like that person. Um, look, the first thing that springs to mind as a question without notice is, is I guess I mentioned Robert Redford before, yeah. but it was by watching The Sting. Oh, The Sting, um, yeah. And there was just something about that movie that it just got me in and there was a friendship and a loyalty and an honour. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and obviously I was probably uh, bewitched by Robert Redford's kind of, you know, sort of charm and extraordinary yeah. kind of guile and cool and a little bit of fuck you, you know, a bit of chin out and... Then this, and of course Newman uh, playing that older role, and then the daring do throughout that show was quite stunning. Um, the perceived breach of loyalty in that moment where you think the younger guys dudded the older guy, and I was just heartbroken. I just remember yes. being heartbroken. It's like, hang on, that's not the code. Yeah, that's not the code. And then for it all to be revealed the way it was revealed just left me so thrilled and 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 it was then it was the preservation of the honor and the loyalty and the friendship um that just made that story sing for me yeah. um and there was an element too of you know taking down the 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 rich fuckwit um, yeah. um and their loyalty uh to their other friend who was shot earlier in the day and that was an interesting you know early take on race relations Yes, um, you know, and it would have hit harder in America, but you know, to, to for over here, that African American thing wasn't as uh, political in my young eyes. But I just remember he was the kindest, most loving man, and for that to happen to him, I was just devastated. So yeah. I think that's that first, uh, the, the the first memory of of really kind of looking to actors and thinking, wow, man, they can take me places and take my heart places, um, and, and tell very. So, so tell very sort of, and that one's a, a, a masculine story. And I know the world's full, full of masculine stories and things like that, but there was a tenderness to it um, yes. that really struck me. Yeah, you are completely right. Like it, it, it might be masculine, but it is also um, a different type of masculinity. You know, mm -hmm. it wasn't the typical kind of, you know, boys being boys kind of thing. No. There, there is a tenderness to it. It's, it's so funny. I hadn't really like thought about Robert Redford for you know for no other reason other than I just hadn't really thought about him and I was flicking through Netflix looking for something the other day and took a call and you know if the if you if you land on a on a on a movie it'll kind of play a scene from it mm. and uh, I, I finished the it was a quick call I finished and it was a I'd landed on all the president's men and there is that scene 
uh, it's really early on when Robert Redford writes up an article and he puts it in for them to uh, publish and Dustin Hoffman's character just stands up, walks over, reads it and starts rewriting it. And Redford goes over and kind of asks him what he's doing and Hoffman's like saying, you've made all these mistakes here, so I'm just making it better. And and if you and he, he's being Hoffman, you know, talking, and he hands it to Redford, who reads it, who's reading it. He's saying, "Look, you've made this mistake. You made this mistake. You made this mistake. But if you want to go with yours, we'll go with yours." And the way Redford just reads through it, and he goes, "No, yours is better." And it is, it's a masterclass of acting where. Not for one instance did I not think he was reading it, that he's not listening to him, that Hoffman... Like, the whole scene is such a masterclass in acting and... Uh, Man, stuff like that too. And because the human being is, you know, we've been... We've evolved to this point in time. Um, and the number one skill of a social being is to be aware of what's going on around you. Mm. And so as human beings, we've got these incredible receptors as to what's true and what's not uh, and what's playing out. And so when you're watching beautiful acting... Yeah. A line as small as that, no, yours is better. To me, it's like a biopsy of the human spirit. You know, a great line can cut through and what might be three or four words might be the most wonderful snapshot into the entire perspective of that particular character in that moment in time. Oh, it's um, – what a great way of putting it. <laughs> but it's true, though. It, it, it gets that um, – it just gets to something – that hits you on a subconscious level and uh, and spells it out. Uh, yeah. You were um, also in the film The Year My Voice Broke. Yeah. How old were you in that? I was uh, 15. 15. 15 years old. That was so exciting, man. Year My Voice Broke, um, end of year 10. So right. I started school when I was young. End of year 10, going into year 11. Uh, and so we were filming that out in Braidwood for some lunatic reason. I was there without a chaperone. Um, <laughs> Very different all, times. <laughs> all the young actors, we, we were living in this um, kind of, it's like a big, beautiful old homestead with big rooms, you know, tall, you know, big balconies and a big room each. And we just ran amok for a week or two when we were there. It was so much fun. Um and, uh, you know, Ben Mendelsohn was on it, Lo Carmen, Noah Taylor, directed by John Digan, and a whole host of Australian classic actors um, yeah. that we all know, you know, but aren't necessarily household names. Uh, but as a young 15-year-old, the opportunity to go out, travel out to Braid would learn those lines. And again, I mean, let's look at the role I played, Justin. Utter fuckwit. Um, <laughs> utter, utter fuckwit. My character was Pearden. I played my fuckwit mate was Mouseed. And we were named Pearden and Mouseed because they were the dicks that John Digan went to school with, the guy that wrote it and directed oh, it. Right. right. And so we were the fuckwit bullies. Right. And so in actual fact, that was just, again, if you look at the continuum of fuckwits I've played and then the um, and then the justice meted out upon me. The justice, if I could remind you, was Ben Mendelssohn picking me up and giving me the classic royal flush. Yes. Where he picks me up and turns me up and dumps my head into... Oh, no, sorry. I'm giving Noah the royal the flush. The flush, yes. I'm shoving his head down the dunny, and then Ben comes in, grabs us, gets me and my mate Mousey, gets us in a double head like that, runs us outside and then takes us back here and then runs us headfirst <laughs> into the wall. And that was super fun. 
So that was Benny Mendelssohn just smacking us. And it was great to see all those people. And, you know, I hadn't even seen Ben back then. He would have been 18. Yeah. Maybe. Man, he was electric. He is. um, Because I've been following his career for such a long time, the Mendelssohn Renaissance is one of the, you know, like I don't know the guy. But I'm wrapped. <laughs> I'm, it's like I'm, I'm really thrilled for him. And he kept turning yeah. up in so many big movies and I wouldn't be expecting it. It's like, Mendo, right. this is great. Yeah, look, it's incredible. It really, really is. I mean, he's an extraordinary actor. Um, and, you know, and he's been there or thereabouts for, for years and years and years. And then it's sort of they, they found him and, and he's got these, these amazing roles. And, but there was a period there when, you know, he was doing guesties in Australian TV like the rest of us hitting you know, having to do commercials to get by. Um, but, you know, it is a long-distance game. I think Murray Bartlett, the New Zealander that won the yes. awards for White Lotus, well, another great example. I was so excited for that guy. Like, that guy wasn't on anybody's radar. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really know who he was. And then it came out, and it's like, wow, he's sort of my age. He's been around. He's been in L.A., not really. So I know that story, and I yeah. know how hard it is. And then when I saw this guy do that role, I was just, like, so excited for him. Because I just thought he was—I thought he was wonderful and beautiful—and I also know what he had to do to keep himself sharp and alive for the decades where no one gave a shit. Yes. And then at that moment in time where the audition came up, that man was ready to pounce, and he grabbed it. Yeah. Mike White from White Lotus saw that audition and said, "He's my man." Yeah. And all of a sudden, booyah, he's on. And it's, it's just—you know—star turn. Like it's. Oh, like, it's so funny, and there are – every time I think about that season of White Lotus, it is yeah. – it's consist- – like, everyone's great in that season, but it's his face that pops oh to the God. fore. And then and then you see him – like, the next thing I see him in was uh, that one-off episode of The Last of Us, yeah. which is, once again, a masterclass in storytelling because when he first turns up, you're like, oh, don't – don't ruin Nick's world, you know? Mm, and then mm. as it moves along, you're like, oh, my God, I'm watching a romantic story in the in the middle of this zombie mm, apocalypse tale. And he was, uh, once again, uh, so different as well. You, you, you're you completely right that, and, you know, the media is so obsessed with who's the new star, how did they break in, who's got the juice. But... Uh, Invariably, the most interesting people are the people who have been playing the long game, and yeah. uh, and yeah. it's almost like it takes a while for people to catch up. I know someone like Killian Murphy has been around for a long time and been a star, but to see him as the face of a proper blockbuster, which would just wasn't going to happen mm. anytime soon, has been great to see, and it, and it does kind of it, it's. In whatever job you do, it's a good thing to remember that if you just kind of stick to your guns and when your opportunity comes, you will be ready to take it. That's right, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like all of those things out and about, there's a thousand things you can't control, but the two things you can are rigor and manners. Yeah. Uh, And rigor and manners set you up for the long game. Yeah. Um, Rigor means that you're going to be ready when the opportunity arises and manners means you might get offered the opportunity. Yes. Um, you know, if you've been rigorous and a fuckwit for 30 years, it's unlikely people are going to say, let's ring the fuckwit and give him a crack, right? Oh, my God. Crack. It's it's like he, oh, he's on the phone again. 
yeah. <laughs> He's at the door again. I can't cope with this. Um, do, do you have a th- – this might be an unfair question to ask you, but do you have a favourite role that you've performed? Oh, yeah, I do. Uh, in terms of my favourite screen role, it was definitely playing Kerry Packer. Yes. Um, in Paper Giants. Um, and the reason being um, is because of the terror that it afforded me. Um, right. Like genuinely being frightened um, in the lead up to the role, genuinely thinking that I would be caught as a guy that couldn't act because for the first time in my life I was playing a character that everyone knew. Right. Um, and they could look at it and go, well, mate, you were meant to be like that. Yeah. And you didn't do it. So that was, and then in terms of the actual story that we told, it's really interesting and it was fun. There was that father-son stuff that I love. Yeah. And that's an ongoing theme um, stuff that I explore in my own work a lot. Um, there was the, uh, also the, the sort of the, the, the high expectations and the fear of failure. Uh, it's a really fun uh, area to play in and that's what Kerry was going through as well. And then also, you know, the lonely, the, the lonely person that everyone wants to know. Um, that I think in the modern world is one of, is, is a really fascinating proposition. And it's not just about that notion of loneliness, you know, which was the, at the heart of my Packer performance, I think. Um, the, the notion of loneliness in the modern world is such an extraordinary uh, contradiction. Mm. Um, and yet I think a lot of people do feel really alone in a time where the planet hasn't been more populated and there are more ways of reaching out. Yeah. Um, but I think um, for those reasons, it was really artistically challenging and joyous, intellectually um, really fascinating uh, and emotionally utterly terrifying because of the the, the skill challenges uh, mm. that I faced. Interestingly, it's our mutual friend, Adam Spencer, that has a big part in me playing that role. And it was because, I won't get into the whole story, but at one point, I discovered that I was in, in during the sort of the meet and greet process of maybe getting the role and auditioning for the role. I was pushing the production company away. I was busy with other things. And I thought I was also, you know, what would Packer do? But then I discovered actually the reason I'd been behaving like that was because I was terrified of getting the role. So there's all this subconscious fear hijacking my body, masquerading as courage and kind of bolshiness. And the moment I discovered that I was terrified of getting the role was the same moment I knew I had to do everything I could to get it because of fucking Adam Spencer. (laughs) When we were at university together way back in the day, we made a promise to each other, which was to say yes to something that frightened the shit out of us at least once a year. And we made that commitment to each other when we were in our early 20s. Right. We figured, you know, let's do it. You know, we were doing a lot of fun things at uni. We were pushing the boundaries. We were having... You know, we were getting involved. There's a lot of crackly stuff going on. Um, and we just wanted to keep that fun, rich, challenging vibe going. Uh, and I remember having this conversation really clearly with Adam. Say something, say yes to something that frightens the shit out of you. And as you know, Justin, as you get older, it's harder to find yeah. things that frighten the shit out of you because we spend our lives organising our life so that we're not frightened anymore. Right. 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 And here I was in this hotel room overseas, suddenly realizing for the first time in a while I was terrified. Yeah. 
And I remember that conversation with Spence from 20 odd years earlier. And I'm like, well, I'm fucked now. I've got to try and get, I've got to try and get this job. Now, luckily enough, I, I did get the job and, and, and I, and, uh, and we got good results. You know, people like the, like the show. Mate, you, you're underselling it. You got great results. Um, before we get, because I want to talk to you uh, about your new live show, but uh, I'm just curious. Uh, so you said you were scared uh, getting into the role of Kerry Packer. You've got to find uh, that sweet spot between representing the person that everyone knows without it turning into caricature. Uh, mm. Do you remember, uh, was there a moment or was there something that helped you unlock the performance? Completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Heaps of them. Yeah. Uh, well, first of all, when you're that frightened, you do a huge amount of research. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So there was, I was literally going, I would talk to everyone, I'd read everything. I'd broken down. I, I, I had his voice in my ears the whole time through um, various stuff I'd got off the net. But there's one moment <clears throat> that really helped anchor me and it was and, and uh, that I embedded in as part of a process. It was this. Everybody knows the, the uh, video. Well, not everybody, but a lot of people know the video of Kerry Packer where he's at the print media inquiry um and he's getting stuck into the politicians saying you know no i'm not going to give you another dollar in tax because you as a government aren't good enough at spending it you know anybody that doesn't minimize their tax need to have their head read that speech which i was always confused about everyone going yeah man fucking yeah yeah good one for the common man and i couldn't ever understand the ridiculous kind of intellectual kind of topsy-turviness of the fucking working man cheering on the billionaire for yeah. not paying his taxes so you know a little bit of fuck off from me to that position but the bit that um unlocked the packer for me i looked at that bit on um the net right yeah and i was looking at it and then i was like oh so then i looked at the analytics of who posted that thing and by some chance i knew the person that posted the original post so i got in touch with i oh know fucking bizarre wow I got in touch with that person. <clears throat> I said, look, you've just put a snippet up there. Do you have the um, full material? They said, I'll send it to you. So I had, uh, it's like an hour and a half, two hours, <clears throat> the full piece of Kerry Packer <clears throat> giving evidence or, you know, appearing before uh, the inquiry that day. So out of that, I, that's where I stripped all the audio out. So I had hours of his audio just in my head. Right. But right at the very, very beginning of that. So it's like raw files. Yep. So I'm sitting there watching the raw files because you're trying to get people in uncharted moments where they're not sure they're being watched. You're looking for any kind of tiny little insight that that offers you something true. So what's happening, Pack is there, he's sitting in the middle of the room and it's, he's surrounded by politicians and then all over here there's fucking press and journalists and he's just getting the shits and he's getting more and more annoyed because of all the thing and he doesn't like the, all this, the, the um, cameras. And he's just wanting to get a move on. And then he's actually said, come on, let's get a move on. You know, he's starting to bully him about a bit, saying, come on, let's get going. And he's standing there by himself. Oh, and he's got these glasses. Now, here's a bizarre one, mate. These are actually his glasses. Right. A, another, remember these ones? These are the yes. glasses from that, from that photo. Yes. This is another bizarre coincidence. My optometrist in Sydney happened to be his optometrist in Sydney. And when Packer <laughs> died, the estate sent all of his glasses back to the optometrist, right? And so they had them all. Right. And they then sent them to me. Here's some of his. Oh, my God. Right? I know. 
all these mad coincidences. So I've got, these are actually his, and these are the ones that he wore in that in in the story I'm telling. Wow. But here's the moment. Here's the, I'm getting to the bit. I'm getting to the bit. No, so. no, I'm loving all of this. Right. So what he's doing? He was sitting there, and he had these glasses on, perched over his things like that. Yeah. At the end of the I nose. don't have the weight on anymore, and you know, and the hair, but kind of this sort of thing. And they said to him, "Could you please state your name?" and the capacity in which you appear. And he did this. My name is Kerry Francis Bullmore Packer, and I appear reluctantly. <laughs> and that, for me, was the essence of it. Great. My name is Kerry Francis Bullmore Packer, and I don't want to fucking be here. And yeah. I don't want to be anywhere. I don't, I don't think he wanted to be in many places. And so what I would do, and because he was surrounded by people, everyone staring at him and he was one lone person in the middle of this room and everyone wanted a bit. And he said that line. Yeah. So when I'm in my fat suit and I'm on set and I've got my hair back like this and I'm getting, because we're very different men, he and I. So I, when I got to work, I had to get in my fat suit and not talk to people. And I had to apologize beforehand because I like to chat and welcome people and stuff like that. But I just had to sit in my little zone. And this was after conversations with my amazing director, Dana Reed. So she said, do this. So what I would do, I'd sit there and you'd be waiting and you'd, then it'd all get set and you know they're about to say action. And just before they're about to say action, I'd sit there and I'd close my eyes and I'd breathe and I'd just say quietly to myself, my name is Kerry Francis Bullmore Packer, and I appear reluctantly. And then I'd hear action, and then you just fucking unload. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. That is magnificent. And that was your little, that was your Packer mantra. Yeah, just something to kind of get back to basics, back to basics. And as I look back on it, it wasn't conscious at the time. But it's setting up these little processes, you know, like, I mean, the, the best example, of course, is Steve Smith. In fact, who will just be starting his new career as a test open and moments away, Justin. Moments. Yes. But the process he goes through before facing every ball, boom, boom, left knee, right knee, box, right? Same yep. with Rafa and they have these little processes. Yes. So I think that was my version of that. Mate, that is magnificent. I love all of that. Um how interesting as well. What a what a what a great thing to find. Yeah, man. It was one of those things you're leaning in, you're going like, oh and you know, it could have sailed right by, but yeah, there was just something the way he sat there, his body his body was leaned forward, he fucking neck out, those specs yeah. like that. Yeah. And I just looked at him and I thought, Man, you've fucking lonely bastard. Yeah. Plus conniving, and I yeah. didn't believe a lot of what he said in that. In that, um, he was trying to convince him he didn't want this or that, and wasn't control this or that. <laughs> it was rubbish. Yeah. He was just bullshitting. But there you are. And uh, workers cheering on billionaires for not paying their taxes. Thank God uh, we've uh, learned from that time, and that hasn't <laughs> continued until now, especially in American politics. I so. know, I know, I know. What a, what, what. <laughs> um, let's uh, get to your live show that is oh, yeah. uh, going to be touring uh, all over Australia, and, uh, and at the end we'll uh, give some dates and I'll put them up at the website oh, so wonderful. everyone can find them. Uh, your new show is called Willing Participant. It That's is it. essentially forced 
stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the first story is from your early 20s, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So these stories I tell, so just to bring it back, the, the, these stories I've written over the years, and years ago there was a story club, Ben Jenkins and Zoe Norton. Yes. Oh, it's just amazing. Uh, they invited me kindly to uh, write some stories. And that was largely a comedy night. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yes. And I was looking at that form going, man, it is a comedy night, but I reckon there's room for some drama, you know, like that audience is primed and they're there and they're listening and it's like, you know, and I reckon I can hold, 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 you know, when you're, when you're on stage, you want to gag, you want to laugh, you're, you're desperate for a laugh. But I was watching this audience and I thought, man, no, we are ready to build the stakes on this fucker. So this opening, the, the, the stories that I've, I've written for the story club, and now the stories of my one man show. And right. so the structure of it is quite, is a bit different to stand up. It's these story mechanisms in play. And so I'm building, I'm building, and I'm building up the tension a little more than a stand up comic might, because I know there's going to be a release. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, these stories came out of uh, Story Club. I wrote them over the years. Then I sort of looked at them and thought, wow, man, these are, I got four stories. They're all pretty cool, very funny um quite moving in, in yeah. parts as well and i thought gosh how am i going to order them and 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 so i just ordered them chronologically right the first story as you say is early 20s then mid 20s then mid 40s and then a bit older than that so it's really interesting and then what i noticed there is these these patterns occur right. certain people i mean certain most everyone faces similar sorts of things at various age ranges so the first story early 20s it's that time of life where you're just starting to come into that first time of life where you're actively choosing your friends. Right. right? Yeah, you yeah. know, high school, you never chose your friends. Yeah, primary you. school. Yeah, They chose you. You know, if you're yeah. like anybody, like anyone, you just arrive with a lot of hope in your heart, hoping you're not going to be lonely at the end of the day, right? Yeah. And so these things trip on through high school, then you go high school, then university, it starts to get a little bit more active in who you're doing. And then in that early 20s, 2021, 20, it's like, Okay, I've got these people, I've chosen these people, but then you're like, oh, who are they? Yeah. I mean, people start revealing themselves. Christ, they're still revealing themselves to me today. Yeah. But this particular one was a group of friends getting together. Somebody had done something, and we were all very interested in what that person had done. Right. And then we discovered at New Year's what they'd done, 
And so if you know anything about Sydney in January, it's ushered in by the five-day test match at the Sydney Cricket Ground. Yes. So this story, this person had done something, all of us decided we really needed to investigate it, you know, forensically, and we had five days at the cricket to do it. What had they done? My friend was having an affair with his cousin. (laughs) Like, (laughs) wow. His first cousin. No. First cousin. I know, you say cousin and everyone immediately looks for a happy out. Oh, you mean second cousin? Oh, cousin twice removed? No, no. No, no. My auntie's daughter. Wow. <laughs> so Goodness. They, uh, hang on, let me... I've just got a... Oh, I hope that sounds not too bad. I've just opened up a window. That's no, um, great. So I've opened up a window while at the same time Reg has started doing the lawn. No, it's Tell great. It's a bugger. No, um, no, no. It's adding, uh, it's adding texture to the oh, podcast. There you go. We want a little bit of texture, a little bit of grit for this particular story. So, Absolutely. you know, so he's doing that. And so, anyway, effectively, look, it's a funny old story. Yeah. But I think at the heart of that particular one gets to that young time in our life where there's still, you're in your early 20s, you know, the beginning of the year is not till the end of January. You've got five days at the cricket and you're, Rarely do we put a time, put aside all this time, days to go through crunchy hypotheticals and go, well, what do you reckon? You know, what do you reckon? While well, you're reading the book or doing the crossword, cheering the cricket, but you're there with your friends trying to figure out, we as a group, yeah, what do we all think about this? Um, and it kind of captures that. Magnificent. All right. I'm not going to ask any more questions because I want no. people to see it and sure. uh, and yeah, yeah. discover more. So then, uh, so you said it's early 20s and it's mid-20s. Yeah. Second story is in my mid-20s. Um, and that mid-20s, uh, for me, man, any mid-20s listeners out there, my love goes out to you guys and girls at the moment. It's, um, Man, it's those first intimations of mortality. It's that first time in your life where $1,000 in your bank account's not going to see you to the end of your life. Um, It's that first time for me where you're like, wow, life's long. It was also the first time for me that I discovered that I'd become a man without any active decisions. I hadn't decided the man I wanted to be. I was just a bag of broken habits masquerading as a character. Right. Uh, And... And you go, right, well, who am I going to be and what am I going to be? So this particular story, I told a lie to get a job, which everyone's done. Everyone. Yeah. But the lie I told (laughs) was I I told a a film production company in Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah that I was a continuity expert, which is a head of department and a highly skilled, highly technical position on a film. Yeah. I was living in Los Angeles at the time. They flew me from Los Angeles to Melbourne where I had to be a continuity expert on a feature film for a month. Yeah. And I had to learn the profession from a book on the 14 hours that I had going there. And so that particular story, I know that, and that was nuts. It that was gives nuts. me so much anxiety. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but it's you're 25 and you're poor and you're hopeful and you're trying to make shit happen and you're going over here and things haven't worked <laughs> out and you're looking over here. And what that really, really explores is the joy and the fun of that boldness, the agreeing to things that you've got no idea what you're agreeing to and just seeing, seeing what happens. 
But then this subtle thing that occurs in your mid-20s where you go, all right, I'm testing the bounds of bullshit just a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but at some point I'm going to become a bullshit artist. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if I want to be that. Right. Right. So I'm going to test the bounds of bullshit, but what am I going to bring with it to suddenly? It's that toss of the coin. Um, yeah. There's one line from the show, I think it's something like, um, and I better have my lines ready in a month's time when I step out on stage in Adelaide, but there's a line that goes something along the lines of, I believe one of the most compelling forces in any situation is legitimacy. If you yes. know your stuff, you remain true, in the end you will prevail. Ironically, to gain legitimacy, sometimes you've got to tell a little bit of bullshit. Yeah, sometimes right. you've got to tell a lot. And yeah. so I think the mid-20s is that time of life where you're kind of half blagging, half catching up to yourself, and it can be real sliding doors moments right through that period. And I try and capture it with this story. And, uh, and, and I hope I speak to a lot of those mid-20s people out there that are kind of feeling like the world's not recognising them at the moment and they're in a bit of a space and a bit of a crisis. And it can be really, really difficult. Um, and this is a bit of a, a love letter to those people. Oh, such a, a beautiful uh, thought process of that moment where you, you can make a decision to try something, but and it's probably a good thing that you try it, but it doesn't have to define you for the rest mm -hmm. of your life. And uh, I, look, to be honest, when you said I had to bullshit to get something, I, I thought, oh, here we go, it's going to be Mark Ruffalo when he said he could ride a horse and then it turned out he couldn't ride a horse. Continuity guy on a, on a feature-length film Dude. is unbelievable. <laughs> mate, mate, it was a whole month. I had to be that. I had to pretend to be that for a month. Yeah. Extraordinary. Anyway, it turned it turns pretty wild. So come and listen to the story. So, yes, we'll leave Fucking, that there. It blows up. <laughs> Great. I can't can't wait to see that. So then, uh, so then it's a bit of a jump, and, and yep. it's like four, uh, early forties. Is that that's right? right? So it's um, the next one happens um, in my early early to mid forties. So we jump forward twenty years in time, um, and it's. This one, very different sort of story and certainly a different sort of story in a comedy show. Uh, my father passed away in 2015 uh, in an effort to reconcile myself with his new form, um, which was ashes. Um, I took his ashes on a bike ride. Um, wow. So I took, and, and again, that's, it all plays out in the show, but it was just a sense... Um, I, I loved my dad and we got on really well. Um, and this is, is a celebration, I guess, of, of what he offered me. Um, a, an exploration of grief um, and a celebration of gratitude. Um, and it's a bit funny because when your dad's all stuffed in a little brick, mm. And you're used to him being the smartest, most intelligent, comforting, warm. Like, what do you do with the fucking brick now? Where do you yeah. put it in the car? What's this thing? And what's your relationship to it? Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, you're going through this extraordinary emotional upheaval yourself, um, full of laughter and love and, and, and tears and hope. And, and you're on a bike dressed in lycra with your dad stuffed in a backpack on your back going, 
down to your old where, where you used to live. It's kind of a tumbling, topsy turvy memories of odd things that happened, things that he caught me doing, you know, back in my youth, things, you know, I, I discovered that grief doesn't wash away our less noble memories, Justin. And yes. so I discovered as I was riding my bike, the various things that my dad had caught me doing in my youth. And there's some reflections on that. Doesn't it kind of accentuate it sometimes? Absolutely. And 100% entirely. And that story really starts looking, and I mentioned earlier about that father and son um, uh, relationship um, that I that I explore. And that particular story then looks at, you know, my father's influence on me uh, and then my role as a father to my twin boys. Um, yeah. And I think that's, a, I, I really love that area. Um, and, and I really like that story because it's a, it's a kind, compassionate story um, about male strength, a certain sort of male strength. Yeah. It was from my father, a strength of um, dependability of, no, no, a strength to let me be me. Yeah. A courage in recognizing that he couldn't control an outcome. And so the next best thing was to have faith in my ability to navigate my life. And yeah. I'll be forever grateful for the strength that he offered me through his trust yeah. in me um, and his kindness to my mother his respect of the family. He was away from the house for a long time. And when he came back, there wasn't a ripple in the house for the love and kindness he offered and the respect that he had for each of us. Mm. Uh, and it's a very different male strength than the one we often celebrate. Um, and I know that there are a lot of beautiful men out in the world making homes, um, gentle and loving and uh, the best they can be through compassion and hard work and dependability and loyalty and a lot of quiet things that we don't often associate uh, with a male narrative at the moment. And so I'm really proud of that story and I love that story because, um, you know, I think it speaks to the good in all of us and, and, I, and I think we we need wonderful male stories as much as we need wonderful everyone stories females yes. but this particular one is, is special to me there, there has to be diversity in the male stories that's uh, i think that's uh, one of the things that people miss the point to it it, it can't all be it, we need diversity amongst stories and then within those stories we need diversity within them i was yeah. uh, listening to an interview with Lisa Lopez, who is the creator, writer, and director of the new True Detective series with oh, wow. Jodie Foster. Yeah. And one of the things that she pointed out in that in this interview I was listening to is that Jodie Foster's character is a, a, a sheriff and a detective, and she's just really good at her job, and she's good at her job because of hard work. And it's not because she's brilliant, and it's not because she's on the spectrum of some sort. And she was saying that 
trope has been done to such an extent. Mm. Mm. I just wanted a woman who is really good at her job. Mm. And and you know she has other character traits like she's kind of she's kind of a bit awful in in some ways but she's just a hard worker mm. and it's like even within that world you know there is a different kind of flavor so to be able to have a a male story that speaks to gentleness I think is paramount yeah. to our times now absolutely and certainly you know and as you say the diversity of thought I mean there's a lot of male behaviors that have been appalling appalling mm. for so many years mm. uh, you know and i witnessed that and again i was lucky and blessed that i grew up in a house with a gentle father yeah um and so i i i, I my position on that if you're going to pull it back and look at a societal de de debate um i think we have a lot of cautionary tales mm. of male behavior yeah. um and they're necessary um but ultimately too cautionary tales have a trail of shame Yes. Uh, and I don't think shame is a motivational emotion. Yeah. Um, and so we need other aspirational tales about yeah. men so that young boys that are growing into men know that there are other ways of being. Um, yeah. You know, so we have the cautionary tales. You don't want to be like that. But, you know, here's a story about another man um, whom you might want to have a look at some of their behaviours and take on some of those. So yeah. my hope is that I'm just sort of adding adding to the uh, very necessary multiplicity of dialogues on that conversation. Yeah. And I'm also uh, weirdly very attracted to stories about grief and, and overcoming them. You know, it is uh, often through art that I've found ways to cope with grief in the real world and yeah. and, and learned about grief as well. Like, uh, you know, we lost our friend Cal Wilson last year and there was uh, – I've been going through – it's people think it can be a linear thing that you deal with, but it's 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 circles, and you go through these circles where you're dealing with it, and it's really intense, and then you've you've hit a point where you've come to terms with it, and then you come back around, and it hits you again, and it's like you have to now d go through that process again, but the process is just slightly different. It's just something else that set the grief off and then you just kind of keep going around in these circles until eventually there's a point where even if the grief never really leaves you it becomes uh, a part of you that you can know that the the circle is going to turn soon and it's going to get back to the part where it is all beautiful and it's and it's all loving and uh, I, I think that's uh, a really important story to tell as well yeah man yeah and again with Cal, I mean, she was such an extraordinary woman. I know you went through so much, so loads of love, man. Oh, yeah, thank you, yeah. Um, all right, the last story. Late late 40s, is that right, or is it yeah, mid-40s? Yeah, this is late 40s now. Yeah. <laughs> Look at us in our 50s. I know, right? Woohoo! <laughs> um, so this story... Um, oh, how, to, how to play it, like, what were... It comes to that thing where we, I guess, look, it's almost, I hadn't thought about it like this until just now, those challenges that we set for ourselves in our mid-20s that we must because we've got no money, we've got no career, we've got no no trade, right? Yeah. And you've got to, you know, press yourself to get, a, to, to get a leg up. This story in my late 40s is not that. This is taking on a new <laughs> challenge. This yeah. is taking on a new challenge. This is leaving a safe haven 
This is, I've got everything set up and I know I can do that and I can make money. I, you know, I'm an actor and a writer and a director and producer. And I do these things. I can I host events, you know, I speak at things. But a new opportunity presented itself. I got a phone call to audition for a musical. And, um, and that immediately was terrifying. Uh, I'm not known for my voice, but I also have always loved the theatre. Right. Um, I've loved the emotions that musicals bring, although I don't, I'm not a, a constant musical goer. Um, but I just thought to myself, you know what? This frightens the shit out of me. <laughs> yes. We've been there, right? We know the fucking rules. Yeah. So that particular story is about taking on a new challenge in your late 40s where you don't really have to, but you think life just might be a little bit more exciting if you're at a, uh, a, 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 a tincture of terror uh, wow. to, to your days. And so that story uh, is, goes through what that was like to, to take on that challenge and take on that audition. Uh, and the audience will have to come along to see how I fared. Uh, but again, it speaks to that notion of constantly challenging yourself and continually waking up going, all right, have I got a bit lazy? You know, I think a lot of people wake up and wonder, fucking hell. Yes. This is all right, but mm, where's that crackle? You know, where's oh. fucking booyah? And it, it's, it's a constant fear of mine. It's a constant fear of... I think it's hard sometimes to describe it because it can. People often mistake what you're saying to mean that you're ungrateful, and and you're not ungrateful. But there, there is a point where you can have certain jobs that make you feel comfortable, mm. and I'm absolutely fearful of being so comfortable that it's ten years time and all my other skills have eroded because I've been happy to stay in this one place. That's it. So rather than thinking of it, when people say, oh, you know, you don't want to be ungrateful, you go, no, 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 but nor do I want to take this for granted. Yes. And so it's like just by, you know, by just turning up and just doing it and just servicing it, after a while you start taking it for granted. But the skills that got you there were about sharpening your blades with new opportunities as you move towards it. So I'm not going to take this for granted by just sitting here and repeating it. I've got yeah. to start sharpening, sharpening my blades uh, and, um, and, and getting into that. But Mate. here's the thing, though, Justin, you must have that notion of staying alive, staying fresh, staying zippy. You're in this wonderful uh, situation at the moment where you're getting um, your eyes and ears across all the bright young comics mm. uh, in the Australian scene, right? Yeah. I mean, how funny is that, dude? Yeah. I mean, that keeps you fucking honest and bright. These bright young things that are sharp and hungry, you get to see their vision and, and get it. I mean, I, I get so excited by meeting new talent. I mean, that must keep you pretty fresh. All these, you know, I mean, do your list, I mean, your listeners know how you're. Yes. Like yeah. They, they know that I work on question everything. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's funny. Um, actually, both jobs, uh, it does keep you sharp. Because you you're 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 getting their energy and you're seeing their youthfulness, and then working with them one on one, you're seeing what skills they don't have. So you get a lot of joy in helping develop those skills, mm -hmm. but it also reminds you of the skills that you have that you should also keep sharp. And then, um, f but funnily enough, of like the question everything side of things has been brilliant, but. Um, I work on The Chase, Australia, as well. Yeah, yeah. And the young uh, uh, quizzer, Mara, who's the smiling assassin, and mm. she's 
she has been like a breath of fresh air for me because when she first started, you know, you have to be good at quizzes. They gave her a, a character that she had to play, but nobody really knew what the character was like. She had people fussing over her constantly, you know, uh, uh, people trying to get a look right. It was hard to get one-on-one time with her. She is absolutely brilliant in the real world. She is brilliant. And she is also a chatterbox. And she's like, like she, and it's everything that's happening. She's oh, I was doing this today. I was doing that today. I was doing this today. And then she'll point at me and go, you've got really good skin for a 50-year-old man. And kind of keeps talking. And it, And they wanted to have her play a particular character and I had to write lines to that character but they weren't right and so so we had lunch a couple of times and I got to know her and then one day I can remember the exact line that unlocked her on-camera personality which was we realized that she's totally unrelatable and she knows it and that's funny and so we had a guy who was talking to Larry about how he gets together with his mates and they like to compare craft beers. And I wrote a line for her as a smiling assassin to come out and say, your friends and my friends are exactly the same. You get together and compare craft beers. I get together with my friends and we compare Swiss chalets that we stayed at over summer. And then she looked at Larry and said, I'm totally relatable. Boom. There she was. <laughs> There's the character. And like she like we just knew that we'd unlock something and mm. you know, it's good to be around young people and have that energy and be able to work together, help develop skills and in the process they teach you where things are at that help keep you relevant as oh, a writer mate. and a comedian. Keep you excited and as a person and too. engaged. And remembering yeah. that hunger. Yeah, you know, remembering the hunger. I mean, I got a lovely situation. I, I live up at Avoca Beach, and I got a yeah. wife that I love, and I've got twin boys, and and all of those things. But you forget what it was like in those early twenties, where you've fucking got to fight to be seen, yeah. fight to get a role. And one of the great joys I've had over the last, well, for a long, long time now, but I mean, really, in the last sort of eighteen months, on different TV shows I've been working on, I was reflecting on this. I've been working with this extraordinary raft of amazing young talent. So mm. on a show called Black Snow, um, I worked with a young woman called Talia and um, another guy called um, Josh McQueen. And uh, just uh, there's, there's too many names on that show. Amazing young people. Um, then North Shore, again, bright young things. And Boy Swallows Universe, which just came out yes. a couple of days ago. Again, yes. working with a young woman, Sophie Wilde, who's amazing. Uh, big world star right now. Another guy called Zach Burgess that plays the old. And then everyone's, of course, seen young Felix, who's playing Eli. But yeah. it was Zach Burgess, beautiful young man, 21 years old, um, crafting a real career for himself. And he was just telling me about how much work he was putting into his auditions. And I was, at the time, I just phoned an audition. Everyone's doing self-tapes these days and they're a bit frustrating. And he was just telling me, oh, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to And he landed himself the lead in a big American TV show and he's over there now making a stack of money. But it was just having lunch with this 21-year-old kid who was going, Robbie, you know, I've got to do this, got to do that. And I realised, man, I just phoned the last one in. Yeah. That's bullshit. Yeah. There's no way to behave. Yeah. What a, that's taking shit for granted, mate. Yeah. Getting an opportunity and not putting it all in. And so sitting down with um, Zach and his lovely girlfriend, Leah, um, and I remembered that, and then an opportunity came up to do a retest for the one I just phoned in. Yeah. Um, they wanted to do a, a callback. 
and it was American. I did all that. So I rang Zach, right, and said, mate, I want you to come and help me and do this. So right. it's just the energy and the love. And again, this is what I'm loving mostly about Adelaide Fringe, where I'm about to arrive in a month. My business goal this year, Justin, is have as many interesting conversations with as many interesting people in as many interesting places as possible. Yeah. Right? That's my business goal. Adelaide Fringe, I can't tell you how excited I am to go over there and meet all the bright young things. Yeah. All the bright people that have been just just practicing their craft and launching. This might be their first show or their second show. And then, of course, the people that have been there for years and years. I mean, your history with the Adelaide Fringe is just ridiculous. So I just <laughs> yeah. can't wait to meet the bright young things and get all those ideas flapping around so that I can re-energize my 50-year-old brain into that period in the lead up to the mid twenties where you're still excited and electric yeah. and hopeful and optimistic and frustrated and, you know, and jam it all in so that I can continue making more one man shows. Yeah, absolutely. Before we get into uh, promoting the shows, I would also be doing my mum a disservice if I didn't ask you uh, about uh, your working relationship with Travis Fimmel. <laughs> Travis Fimmel. I think, um, because this is the second thing you've worked together, isn't it? We did three shows together three. Uh, this last 18 months. Yeah. I know, every woman's dream. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, we worked together really closely on Black Snow. Um, yes. And where I'm one of, the, uh, one of the lead suspects, I guess you'd call me. Uh, and that was a beautiful show. South Sea Island story set here in Australia. Oh, or an Australian story with that South Sea Island flavour. And, again, that was fascinating culturally. Worked with Travis on that. And look, that first little while with Trav was really, really interesting. He's a really interesting character. Um, and really comes at his, his, his acting from a curious place. He's, you never know what's going to happen with him. Mm. You never know which way he's going to do it. He really is a fruity unit, right? He's a fruity unit. Yeah. Uh, he turns up and he's got different things. He wants it to be interesting and unique. And the idea of doing something that's just phoned in is not on his radar at all. Um, so you've got to stay alive. You've got to know your lines. You've got to know what's happening. You've got to know where you are in a scene. Um, he's a star. Yeah. Right? He's a legitimate star. He turns out there's something about that face that's got fucking 40 watt lights coming out of those eyes. Yeah. And people are just drawn to him. You can't help but be drawn to him. Yeah. There's something about the crackle on the screen with that guy. Um, and so... It was a very different way. Often you'd get together with that and you'd rehearse lines and you'd go through rehearsals. Trav doesn't work like that. Um, he does his own rehearsal and his own homework and he's got notes all over his page and things like that. And then he comes in. But sometimes, you know, he can be in a real wrestle with the scene and right through there's not a sense of, oh, got this, got that. It's like, you know, he's not arriving going, come on, I've got this, bang, hoo hoo. I know exactly what's going to happen. He arrives. And it's like, man, this next hour and a half on this scene is going to be as surprising to you as, as it is to me. Right. It's like that. It's fucking, mate, it's Caesar at the Rubicon, let the dice fly. Right. Uh, it's that, which is why you get that electricity in the scenes. It's, it's, and it's sometimes interesting to work with. You don't know how the scene's going to play out. Yeah. Um, because, it, you know, there's been a stack of surprises throughout it. Now, personally, I, I like that. Yes. I'm comfortable with it. Um, if I need something... Um, you know, he was kind enough to then, you know, a couple of times just some, run some lines with me before I, I like to hear the words out of my mouth before yeah. I step in front of the camera just to get it going a yeah. little bit. And so he was kind enough to, to you know, join me with that. Um, and so 
Um, and we're very different men too, you know. I mean, Trav is, um, Trav's not married. Um, he's got his own business. He runs his beer company as well as being a worldwide star yeah. uh, and being an extraordinary kind of guy. So we've got very different lives, very different men. Um, but I think what... I think what might connect us is that we're both very emotionally driven. Right. Um, Travis is emotionally driven. Um, he's a he's a heart connector guy. Um, even although he can be, you know, he can kind of protect that as well. Mm-hmm. So that's a really interesting. And I think again, that's what makes him more fascinating is that he is all emotion, and you can see that in his work, right? But there's also a sense of you know, keep it here, and people love that. People like to try and pick pick behind the thing. So we made, um, so we got Black Snow was where we got to know each other. Uh, and then we were sort of, uh, um, Boy Swallows Universe, we were both in. Uh, and I saw him just the other day for the premiere of that. It was lovely to catch up. And then we were both in court and I didn't see him on court. I had to spend the day with Sean Penn, sadly. So I missed my time with Travis. I know, name drop. <laughs> Booyah. Um, but so Travis on that. But if you haven't seen court yet, man, watch Travis on that. Right. I reckon it's one of his best turns. He is fruity and funny and yeah. fully commits. Yeah. And so, you know, there's not there's not a sense of ego when you're watching that performance because I, I, I thought it was, I thought he was hilarious. So yeah, that's Trav, man. I really um I wish him all the best. He's he was over making June, I think, the TV series he was doing. Anyway, he's oh, got so yeah. many shows coming out. Um and it'll just be fascinating to see what he did does. Uh but I think at heart, mate, he's a he's a um, he's a sweet guy from rural Victoria that wouldn't mind being back on his farm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's a he's a fascinating actor. One of the things that I think that people find fascinating about him overseas, which they probably don't quite recognise, but I think we recognise, is that there is uh, a, a suburban Australian masculinity that is at both times can be feeling quite dangerous but can also feel mildly camp and oh, uh, there's and uh i think yeah. you know his turn in as ragnar where people are like what is happening here it's like i feel like i know he's playing a viking from centuries ago but i kind of know that guy because i grew up with him mm, mm, it, mm. it is yeah, the wonderful thing. part of the Ven- wonderful part of the venn diagram where the viking meets the kid from Moravan. yeah and, uh- <laughs> So uh, that's great. Oh, I'm uh, I'm very happy to hear that. Uh, more importantly, I'm very happy to hear about your new show. I think it's going to be stunning. Even the way you described it, as a guy who loves structure, it feels so right. Um, where can uh, people see the show, and uh, and also uh, what sites can they go to to book tickets and find out more information? Yeah, wonderful. So I'm on at Adelaide Fringe Festival. I'm there starting on the opening night of the Fringe, which is February 16th, Friday, February 16th. That's the show I'd love everyone to come to because it's my first show and I'd like some numbers. But yeah. I am there for two and a half weeks. So February yeah. 16th to March the 1st. I'm at Where the, are you? I'm at the Holden Street Theatres. That's right. Yep. In the Arch. And the Holden Street Theatres, it's just about five minutes outside the CBD. Yeah. But it's a little cluster of theatres. There's like four yeah. venues there. Uh, it's got a great history with the Fringe. It's a little arts precinct in and of itself. So there's other shows to see when you get there. They've got yeah. some great part of the program. They've got these funny little funny little Shakespeare bits that they do, which are all comedy. Just a wonderful little area set up by another extraordinary Australian performer, a woman called Martha Lott. Yes. Now, Martha is extraordinary in her own right in that, you know, um, 
She's a creative director, artistic director. She's pretty much the producer of that place and has just finished starring in one of their shows. So, I mean, I don't know where she finds time in the day to do it. I mean, she was up last night looking at my poster, for example. So an amazing woman running that program out there. The Holden Uh, Street Theatres, for anyone outside of uh, South Australia, is an icon and is uh, is a beautiful place to perform and is so important to the uh, festival uh, and the uh, Adelaide uh, theatrical culture. So it's it's such a great place for your show to be performing. Thanks, man. Yeah, I'm super excited. Um, I'm in the Arch, which is a beautiful old sort of church-type mm. theatre, I think, and uh, I can't wait to get there. Uh, grabbing tickets. Um, you Google my name, Rob Carlton, willing participant. You go to the Adelaide Fringe. Uh, website and it's all there. You clickety click. Uh, if you jump on my uh, Insta site, so I'm just learning this stuff, Justin. I don't, yeah, I don't mind telling you how fucking it's a lot with the times I am. Uh, <laughs> so Instagram, I'm at Robbie J Carlton. Uh, you can put that up there. Who cares? Uh, Facebook's the same, but there's there's links, those little link trees or bio links, and you yeah. can click on that, and it's it's all there. Um, Excellent. It's a super cheap show. It's like thirty bucks, twenty five yeah. bucks, something like that, and. Um, I just can't wait to see people out there and and connect these stories. What I find with the stories I tell, I have done this show. um, And the thing that I'm proudest of, I guess, is that I've had any people from, you know, 15, 18 years old, right through to 80, sitting side by side, laughing and crying uh, and coming out. And and one fella said to me, I did it down here at my local theatre. And this uh, fella I've known for a little while up here, he's a, He's a plumber, came up to me. He says, Robbie, thanks so much, mate. I haven't been to the theatre much. He said, but that was great. I feel like I've just watched four movies in my head. Yeah, great, great. And it was like, all right, I'll take that. Yeah, absolutely. And and then after the Adelaide Fringe, are you? Adelaide Fringe, after Adelaide Fringe, I'm down to Canberra Comedy Festival. Yep. Um, So one night only, March the 23rd at Canberra. Can't wait to get back down there. Now, that's actually an encore performance. Um, of the, I did the same show in Canberra uh, last year. Uh, this is basically my first. The Adelaide Fringe is my is my my first real foray into yeah. setting up a, a tour for the year. Um, so I'm doing Adelaide. I'm doing Canberra, and then I got to figure out um, what to do next and 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 how I go. So keep an eye out for dates. But I'm really looking at. Um, I got to get to Melbourne at yeah. some point. I got to get to Sydney, uh, and I really love the regions. Man, yeah. I love doing little tours around the place because I fill yeah. the car. I got my surfboards and my bicycles yeah. and my chair. It's just me in a chair on a stage, and I can fang around and hit hit my stories and and meet people. I love I love driving and seeing little towns. So who knows oh. where I'll go? Oh, I'd love to see you do a tour. You know, go everywhere from Broome up to uh, Rockhampton. You know, it. you could do all those beautiful theatres. It'd be fantastic, mate. All you need to do is send me your diary, so I know where all those bloody locations are. No one knows that <laughs> stuff better than you. <laughs> I'm more than happy to help you with that. Hey, uh, let's uh, let's get the uh, Adelaide Fringe going, and then come back and tell us what you've learned from the show and how it's changed. And uh, you know, I, I, I think there's maybe 700 other shows that we can talk about. Uh, Absolutely. Man. But um, thanks for being on the podcast. You're uh, a gentleman, and uh, that kindness that you talked about coming from your father uh, it permeates your soul. So thanks oh. for being on the podcast, and I I can't wait to talk to you. Uh, again soon. Take care, man. Loads of love. Thanks, mate. How great was that? He's fantastic, right? 
I just had such a good time and hearing all those stories was magnificent. And as he even stated at one point, (laughs) it's like I didn't give him a heads up with anything, you know. So all I said was, I'll probably talk about your career and we'll talk about your show. And if he can do that off the top of his head, imagine how great his show is going to be. So uh, please go and check that out at the Adelaide Fringe. Um, It was also directed by uh, the brilliant Darren Gilshanen. I think that's how you pronounce his last name. I've read it for so long and then I suddenly was like, how do you say it? Uh, But it will be uh, an absolute beauty and I think you'll get... uh, so many different flavours from it. You'll get comedy, you'll get drama, you'll get uh, get deep explorations of pure emotion and then it'll be silly. Like it's just kind of what you want from a live show. So uh, if you're in Adelaide, please go and check that out and then he will be back in Canberra as well. I'll put the uh, link for the Adelaide shows uh, up on, you know, Facebook and, you know, all the, all the places that you can find me. You know where you can find me. So I'll put them up there for you so it makes it easier for you to go and check out his show. Okay. Once again, thank you for all your support. I hope the year has started well for you. Uh, I have found this year to be, I was saying on stage last night at uh, the Enmore Theatre that normally at the beginning of the year, you have that energy, it's like, boom, it's the start of the year, let's get to work, and at the start of this year, I was like, fucking hell, do I have to do January again, and then I was thinking about all the other months, oh, do I have to do July, oh, October, fuck off October, anyway, I've been working through that just by doing little bits and pieces here, and little bits and pieces there, and slowly finding the creative spark inside of me again, and getting a little bit of energy into me, so... Uh, I feel like things are on the upswing and uh, you're one of those reasons. The podcast allows me to reconnect with people and I don't take that for granted. So thank you very much for being you. Thank you very much for your support. I hope you're well and I will be back again next week with a couple more podcasts and blogs for you and hopefully some announcements of some gigs. We're starting to look at gigs so uh, I'll let you know about that I'm at the comedy store actually this Thursday to Saturday that is the 18th to the 20th of January so if you're around feel free to come and say hi otherwise I will see you at some point in the year take care until then sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.